Now we're going to go ahead and get started. I imagine there may be some folks that will filter up here in a moment. But it is two minutes after. According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. And we turn to Luke chapter 7, the last half of the chapter, verses 36 through 50. Luke 7, 36 through 50. Continuing our study from last week where we began looking at the woman here, sometimes ascribed to be Mary Magdalene, sometimes often thought to be a prostitute, but whatever the case, uh, she is a woman that the Pharisee disapproves of, and, uh, and yet she is a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And so we've got a lot to learn from this, uh, from this episode. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer is filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Mighty Father, we do thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together. We do uh, recognize that this is a gift of your grace, that you have sustained our lampstand, that you have provided for this ministry, and we we are thankful for it, Father. We uh, recognize that we need your word on a daily basis. We need to grow in the grace and knowledge, and we thank you that in this lampstand we have the word of God taught line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Father, I thank you for this morning and for these believers here who have made the decision to redeem this opportunity. We ask for eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is episode 22, and in the seven points of the outline, we got through three of them and started to look at number four last week. We saw the affair, the actors, the anointed, and we left off with the annoyed the affair, or the event, the activity, I think I originally titled this the uh, situation or the setting until I realized that two, three, four were all starting with A's and then I got carried away with myself there. So we go with the affair and it's a dinner party and we want to realize that things that might otherwise seem to be innocuous, they might otherwise seem to be inconsequential. Uh, most often, uh, it's just the opposite. They're very consequential. The Father is placing us where we need to be in the exact time, in the exact place, in the exact circumstances where we have an opportunity to bear fruit. And in this case, it is a dinner party that has been accepted. Um, the language here, coming as it is in the imperfect tense, indicates that this request was repeated. Uh, he was requesting him. He was continuously requesting him over and over again to dine with him. And so he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined. And again, the language there being in the imperfect. So there's time going by. This was not just a single invitation, but this was an ongoing uh, event. In other words, if it was Capernaum, probably not, or one of these other locations, the idea was, was that at any time that Jesus and his disciples were passing through this area, he had a standing invitation to come in here and dine with this Pharisee. And some of that maybe is, is reading too much into it, but nevertheless, it is a continuous action tense in the, uh, the language here. But the dinner invitation provides an opportunity. Under point two, we looked at the actors. Now here I'll have to skip ahead. 
we pass by these slides, the actors. Typically what I will do is I will mark slide numbers so I don't have to do this manually anymore, but that's fine. The actors, Simon the Pharisee and this woman, we don't know her name. We don't know her name. Uh, Simon, we are told his name. And uh, the, the Roman tradition that goes back centuries that assigns this to Mary Magdalene is, is really contradictory to the next chapter. In, cha in chapter 8, it says, Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Stewart, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to the support out of their private means. Well, the indication here in chapter 8, these women that are being mentioned, Mary and Joanna and Susanna, and then the other ones beyond those three, but they're being introduced here for the first time. This is their initial introduction to the narrative. And if indeed this woman here in Luke 7 was Mary Magdalene, then it makes no sense to introduce Mary in chapter 8 and verse 2 in, uh, in the way that they do there, to introduce her as if she's never been seen before in the, in the Gospel of Luke. He doesn't say Mary Magdalene, who, by the way, was the one who anointed him and, and wept and cried and was in Simon's house, doesn't say any of that. It says, uh, from whom seven demons had gone out. And that's all we know. And we don't know what she did under the influence of those demons. We don't know what she did in Magdalene. There's no indication that she was a prostitute or that uh, even that this woman here in Luke 7 was a prostitute, although I think you can make a case for that. So the, uh, the identification with her as Mary Magdalene is really, is really unfortunate. She is called a sinner. And we made some comment on that. We all sin. Every single one of us is a sinner. But when you call somebody a sinner, when the Jews of this day called somebody a sinner, what that meant was that they were a non-observant Jew. They weren't a Gentile. They were racially Jewish. But they were non-observant. In other words, they did not uh, habitually partake in the rituals and in the festivals and the feasts and so forth. They didn't observe Passover and Pentecost and trumpets. They were non-observant. Um, how many born-again believers do you know? They're non-observant. They're born again, they're regenerate, but they drift from the assembly and whatnot, and they just stop observing. And, and when you look at them, you wonder, you know, what's the practical difference between you and an unbeliever? As far as your daily life is concerned, you're living like an unbeliever. That's the dog returning to its vomit, as uh, the Scripture describes it. So the Jews of this day referred to such others as sinners because they were non-observant. And in their mind, they weren't even trying. They weren't even making any effort to maintain ritual purity, to maintain the status uh, that would allow them to, uh, to enter into the temple or to participate in the holy uh, meals or any, any such thing. Uh, certain occupations were automatically sinners because they would never be ritually pure. The tanner or the, the undertaker or the tax collector or, for a woman, the prostitute. She would never be uh, ceremonially pure in the minds of, of uh, or under the stipulations of uh, the ceremonial code of Mosaic law. And so that characterizes their lives and they then have the title of a sinner. It's kind of it's one of those awkward things you've got to deal with because otherwise you're reading the Gospels and you say, well, we're all sinners. What's the point? You know, or when it talks about the fear of the Jews, 
Well, who are the Jews? I thought they were all Jews. <laughs> so Jesus was a Jew. The disciples were Jews. Who are these Jews then that they're fighting with? So that's the reason why we want to be very specific in our studies, and particularly in the Gospels, and identify the vocabulary appropriately. Under point three, we examine the anointed. The anointed. Slide 11. And here is the activity of this woman. Now, I want to go through this once again because I think her activity here is remarkable. She, under subpoint A, she learned where the Savior could be found. She learned where the Savior could be found. And that's vital. One of the best um, blessings we have as witnesses and testimonies is that we, have, we do have the answers. We have the answers right here in the Bible. And so any lost soul or any person that you encounter that's struggling and just miserable in their fallen lives, if they are being convicted, if the Father's working, if the Holy Spirit's convicting them, the Father's drawing them, and they start then to look for answers, where are they going to go? And what role do we have? Because we're the ones with the answers. See, well, she learned where the Savior could be found. The sinner came to the Savior with a costly gift. Now, this was not to earn any favor. This was in appreciation. So tragic, I think, that people mistreat this passage and they deal with it as if somehow this, the bringing of this gift has merit attached to it. There's no merit to this. Jesus Christ says that it is an uh, appreciation uh, for the forgiveness she recognized had already been granted uh, verse 47, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Past completed action, present ongoing results. They have been forgiven. And she responds as a forgiven one, for she loved much. That's not causative, that's explanatory. The gift she brings is in response to the forgiveness that she has received. That's the whole point to this parable. That's the whole point. When uh, he takes Simon through the parable, we haven't touched the parable yet. We'll deal with that here this morning. So she learned where the Savior could be found. She came with a costly gift as a response. Thirdly, she observed an opportunity for service. She observed the opportunity for service. This here is a wonderful pattern, by the way, for a brand new believer who comes to Christ, who, who recognizes now as a redeemed person, she has an opportunity or he, whoever the saved person is, has an opportunity to serve. All right, then point four, the annoyed. This is where we left off last week, slide 13. Simon. Simon engages in logic, but it's faulty logic. He begins with a premise. <laughs> and the fundamental flaw is he has this assumption that, that no legitimate prophet would allow this woman to touch him. And that, because that's an assumption he starts with, the remainder of his logic is then flawed. We look at it in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, saw, and then this is the anointing, the weeping, the crying, the, the, the touching, and everything that takes place here. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if, second class condition, remember, we've been dealing with that now for, it seems like a month. This is the class that assumes the thing to be untrue. If. And I don't believe he is. If this man were a prophet, he would know. Again, second class condition. He's assuming that Jesus doesn't know. 
So assuming that he's not a prophet and assuming that he doesn't know. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him that she is a sinner. This is his logic, but it's flawed. It's flawed. Under subpoint B, we identify the fact that he assumes the condition to be untrue, that he is not a prophet. If this man were a prophet, assumes the condition to be untrue. The Pharisee is at least schooled. See, their, their biggest dilemma is if he is a prophet. As Nicodemus testified in John 3. Because if he is a prophet, if he is a teacher sent from God, then they're accountable. They have to listen to the message because it's coming from God. And Nicodemus identified the fact that by virtue of the miracles, it was undeniable in his mind that Jesus was indeed sent from God. Nicodemus doesn't use the word prophet, but he identifies God as the authority for the message because of the miracles. Now, so now here's this other Pharisee who understands his dilemma that if he does truly identify Christ as a prophet, then he has to follow the teaching. He has to submit to that prophet's authority. If Jesus is not a prophet, then he can uh, he can dismiss him as as a false teacher. He can even uh, denounce him as a heretic and, and all the rest. He can then assert his own Pharisaical authority. And uh, so it's uh, this is all a power uh, struggle, if you will, in the mind of this Pharisee. And the moment he can convince himself that Jesus is not a prophet, then he's won. As far as he's concerned, he's the authority. Jesus is the false teacher, and he can proceed from there. We uh, discussed last week also the nature of this invitation, the fact that his home was opened, the fact that others were permitted to come in and observe, like this sinful woman, uh, and the fact that he did not um, give him water for his feet in verse 44. He did not uh, greet him with a kiss in verse 45. He did not anoint his head with oil in verse 46. There were a lot of things that the Pharisee could have done and indeed should have done had he been viewing Jesus Christ as a superior. But it's clear that he's not. It's clear that he's viewed Jesus Christ as an inferior. He's viewed Jesus as someone that's here under evaluation and uh, trying to make up his mind whether he's a prophet or not. And now he's convinced he's not. Now he's convinced he's not. He's waited until he can come, just jump to that first assumption that he's not a prophet. And we've all encountered this. We've all encountered people that have had their minds made up ahead of time. They, they already anticipate what they want to discover. And so the very first instant that they find what they think is evidence towards what they want to conclude... Then they jump at it and say, aha, I knew it. And they grab the first little bit of what they think is evidence to validate what the, the preconceived idea, the, the, the conclusion they wanted to come to in the first place. We all know people have done this. We've done this in times past. This is what the Pharisee's doing. And the moment he has that opportunity, he's able to say, aha, he's not a prophet. He would know. Again, would know. That's, that's potential language, and it's language of, uh, of, that completes the second-class condition, completes the assumption that the second-class conditional statement is untrue. When you say he would know, he's really saying that he doesn't. He doesn't know who this woman is. He doesn't know what kind of woman it is that's touching him. 
Now, this Pharisee is completely wrong because Jesus knows who the woman is. He knows who the Pharisee is. He knows what kind of woman the woman is. He knows what kind of man the Pharisee is. Jesus Christ has already been prophetically clued in to all of these issues. Now, the statement of a prophet, I was going to read an article on this last week, but I think I'll let it go for now. Are we, are we comfortable with the prophets and how the prophets would know the people that approached them, how the prophets were clued in, not because they had omniscience, but because they were clued in to what was going on when God would give them... Okay. We're solid on that. I think we spoke to that last week. There is a, a rather lengthy article in Kyle and Delich, but it's it's um, a bit technical, and I don't want to bore everybody to death with it here this morning. All right. Now, the two items that he thinks he doesn't know are who and what sort. Who and what sort. It's a twofold issue. It's a twofold object of the verb to know where he thinks that Jesus doesn't know, but if he was a prophet, he thinks that he would know who and what sort of person this woman is. See, the Pharisee at least understands that spirit-indwelled Old Testament prophets are uh, aware of the people they're dealing with. He's just incorrect about his assumption that Christ is clueless. Christ knows exactly what's going on. But he is correct in the fact that prophets do typically know who they're dealing with and what's going on. Now, the idea of what sort of woman, patapas is the adjective, um, not patamas, which is river, that's right, <laughs> or we get hippopotamus, which is the river horse. Um, no, this is not patamas river, this is patapas, an adjective that references uh, a, a classification of what sort, of what kind. And, you know, it's, it's remarkable the way a legalist is very quick to start grouping people into classifications. What sort of person? Is this a person that's worthy of me talking to or a person not worthy of me talking to them? Basic classifications for any Pharisee. You're either worthy of my dealings or you're beneath my notice. That's the Pharisee's pride. Say, you're either... Observant or non-observant, in which case we call you a sinner. If you're observant, you're either more observant than me or not as good as me. <laughs> and for those who are observant, it was always that scale. Are you better than me or am I better than you? As Paul said, I was advancing beyond many of my contemporaries. Paul was, was thriving in his uh, generation as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. That's uh, it's extreme praise, but it also tells you where he was on the sliding scale of things, on the, uh, the Pharisee pecking order. It is used seven times in the New Testament, and it might be worth at least perusing these. Uh, Matthew 8, 27. When uh, he says, peace be still, and, and uh, they say, you know, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men, these are his own disciples, the men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. 
See, the apostles, they, they weren't grabbing clues right away and then putting it all together in one fell swoop. They, they pieced it together a little bit here, a little bit there over time. For they finally realized that he is not only, uh, you know, that he is truly the Christ and what the Christ is all about as God the Son, the God man, man, God in the flesh. What sort of man is this? It's an amazing question. Obviously, typically, human beings don't have command over the weather. Mark 13, it's used twice in verse 1. It's also, uh, let's see. Remember if that's a parallel account? Oh, no. As he was going out of the temple, this is shortly before his crucifixion, as he was going out of the temple, one of the disciples came to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones. What kind of stones? What amazing stones. There's no building like this here in Jerusalem. And what wonderful buildings. What kind of buildings? What sort of buildings? All impressed with the outer beauty of the, of the temple, which Christ had already had to cleanse twice which was slated for destruction, which was filled with the most evil, prideful uh, abominations imaginable. Yet they're impressed with it. The disciples are impressed with it. <laughs> Interesting. Well, we'll deal with that when we get to that point. Luke one twenty nine. They were wondering what sort of statement this was. I think that's the reference there. Mary was perplexed when Gabriel appears and says, Greetings, favorite one, this lo the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. What kind of, what kind of. So here we have it in 739. It's also in 2 Peter 3.11 and 1 John 3.1. 2 Peter 3.11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Given that our God is a consuming fire, given that his wrath is exercised, given that he exercises judgment, that he is a God of righteousness, what kind of people ought we to be in the conduct of our Christian walk? Finally, 1 John 3.1 See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. What kind of love? Well, the love that God so loved the world. What kind of love is that? Such was the love of God for the cosmos that he gave his only begotten son. It's an incomparable love because it demanded an incomparable sacrifice. 1 John chapter 3, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So when he talks about what kind of woman this is, he's already classified her. He's already dismissed her as not worthy of being touched. As in fact, if she does touch him, he's unclean. All caught up here on the touching. Now under point D. The faulty logic is that having a sinner touching you is unthinkable. That's the faulty logic. That's what underlies all of this. It's what causes him to assume that Jesus is not a prophet. Wrong assumption. It's what causes him to conclude that, that uh, he doesn't know who this woman is. Again, wrong conclusion. Two wrong conclusions based upon a faulty assumption. That having a sinner touching you is unthinkable. 
I mean, think about what not long ago Jesus was touching a coffin. Right? Brought the whole proceeding to a stop, laid hold of it, brought the man back to life. Well, you know, touching a coffin to the to under Mosaic law would render you ceremonially unclean. Touching a coffin would, would remit and under Pharisee law would would render you unclean. But Mosaic law as well. But he touched coffins, he touched dead bodies, and now, you know, if you if you touch a dead body but he comes back to life, then does that count? <laughs> Someone could say, well, you touched a dead body. Oh, no, it's not. He's alive. That would cause a whole lot of debate back and forth among the rabbis in the Mishnah. All right. Or how about a leper? If he cleanses a leper? You know, you, you're not supposed to touch a leper. See. Hapto is an interesting verb study. Number 680. Not only its usage in the New Testament, but where it's used in the Septuagint to translate uh, particular places in the Old Testament, especially in the Levitical Code, where the clean versus unclean uh, material is being presented. Let's uh, flip back to Leviticus 5 and get a little, a little touch on this. Leviticus 5. Sorry. Didn't mean to say we'll get a little touch on this. Leviticus 5. I'm just going to speak in some general terms here. What are the first two subpoints? Mosaic law, and you can list these as one and two in your outline. Mosaic law proscribed touching A, B, and C. I'm just giving you variables. Think of this as an algebra class. Mosaic law proscribed touching A, B, and C as despoiling ceremonial cleanness. Let's just say that Mosaic law legitimately had a list of items where touching those items would leave you ceremonially unclean. But what did the Pharisees do? Pharisaic legalism added D through Z and then some as despoiling what I'm calling Pharisaical cleanness as despoiling pharisaical cleanness. Once all those additions are made, and once all those other expectations come in, you can no longer refer to that as Mosaic law. It's now pharisaical law. That is, Mosaic law as added to and twisted and perverted and, and turned into something it was not. See, the Lord of the Sabbath arrived, and His view of the Sabbath observance was nowhere near or even remotely similar to the Pharisees' view of Sabbath observance. So, who's right? Obviously, the Lord of the Sabbath is. The one who gave the law is. Not these Pharisees and what they did with the law. See? And it's the same thing today when um, Baptist legalism or, or Catholic legalism or Pentecostal legalism or any other form of legalism you come across today, Bible church doctrinal legalism, whatever it is, when you've added to the Word of God. You've violated one of the most serious things in there. God warns not to take anything from His Word or add to it. And here's human beings that do just that with their uh, stipulations and laws and rules and, and so on and so forth. 
churches that go far beyond anything the, the Scripture ever deals with. Head covering, for example, what we're dealing with now, 1 Corinthians 11. And churches that take what the Bible presents as a, as a principle there in head covering and then just absolutely expand upon it into this monstrosity of legalistic observance. It's no longer the Word of God at that point. It's a Word of man with a little bit of a mixture of the Word blended in to make it appear to be scriptural. All right, so here's our basic principle that the Mosaic Law did have stipulations. But over the years, the Pharisee traditions and what ultimately would become rabbinic Judaism in the next couple of centuries, the, the, uh, it, it became unrecognizable, it became just so intensified. And we can see some of these here in Leviticus 5, um, starting in verse 2. If a person touches any unclean thing, and that could be a lot of things. It wasn't just food that was clean versus unclean, but animals were clean versus unclean or other things. Whether a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of an unclean cattle or a carcass of unclean swarming things, though it is hidden from him and he is unclean, then he will be guilty. Okay? And uh, touch it and you're unclean. Or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort, his uncleanness may be uh, with which he becomes unclean and it is hidden from him and uh, then he comes to know it, he will be guilty. So maybe he didn't even know. But after the fact, he becomes aware of it. Oh, I touched that, didn't I? Unclean. Um, there's more here. Let's go back now to uh, chapter 15. has some more. Leviticus 15. See, uh, yesterday, no, Monday. <laughs> Monday, some driver on Tamayo Drive uh, decided to pull over in front of my house and drop a dead cat on my front yard. <laughs> Go figure. Now I'm sitting in my study, which has a window, looks out front, and I see this lady dump a dead cat on my front yard. And uh, I go out there and confront her and say, what are you doing? She said, oh, I'm sorry. This poor cat was run over about 30 feet up the road over here in front of somebody else's house behind a truck. And it was just in the sunshine. It was bright. It was hot. It just looked awful. And your yard was so shady and cool and peaceful. I thought that it would be better for this cat to be under the shade. Dead cat. Dead cat. Yeah. A carcass. Who is not uncomfortable wherever it is. <laughs> The carcass is not uncomfortable in the sun or the shade or anywhere else. It's getting eaten by bugs and everything. Dumps it in my front yard. <laughs> anyway, I uh, said, well, can I throw it in your yard? And back and forth and different things. And, and she, well, don't you have a, you got a trash bag? And, and it's just stupid. Anyway, but she was so sensitive and whatever. And I said, oh, this will be, uh, be a real pleasant sight for my young children. And she goes, oh, you have young children. And she was all... I mean, she was one of these wishy-washy Austin types, you know, having compassion on a feline carcass. Anyway, what a pleasant story. So on Monday, I was ceremonially unclean because I scooped up the dead cat and bagged him up and took him to the park across the street where they had a dumpster. 
Um, why am I telling you this story? Oh, I was ceremonially unclean on Monday. So if I had wanted to, I could not have gone into the Jewish temple. I committed no sin. I was not carnal. I was not out of fellowship. But I had touched a carcass of a cat, which is an unclean animal under Mosaic law. So even though I'd committed no sin, I was still in fellowship. I was ceremonially unclean. We don't want to get confused between the ceremonial purity and uh, spirituality versus carnality, because those aren't those aren't uh, comparable issues. Now, in chapter 15, we got a little bit more of it here. Um, Speak to the sons of Israel, verse 2, and say to them, when any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. Moreover, uh, this moreover shall be his uncleanness and his discharge. Uh, it is his uncleanness, whether his body allows its discharge to flow or whether its body obstructs its discharge. Every bed on which the person with a discharge lies becomes unclean. The, uh, there's requirements here for washing the, uh, his clothes and bathing in water and be unclean till evening. Uh, you know, if he sits on a saddle, if he touches uh, all these items here, you know, women that have babies, uh, men that uh, are engaged in, in, in sexual you know, marital activity there. Verse 16, um, verse 19 is, is uh, the woman's menstruation. There's, uh, there's just a lot of stuff in here. And you go, man, what is all this? <laughs> you know, and this, this includes even normal marital activity. Nothing sinful with any of that. So there are procedures. But what the Pharisees had done was they had gone and they had expanded those beyond what the law here deals with. For instance, this woman touching him. If she was indeed a, a prostitute, then sure, she is indeed uh, ceremonially unclean. She's uh, uh, ineligible to partake of the Passover meal. She's ineligible to go into the temple. She's ineligible to do these things. She needs to go through a cleansing ritual. She needs to wait the, the period of time there that's required based upon her uncleanness. She needs to present an offering. She needs to go through a ceremonial purification. But simply touching him. All right. Under point three, this is now sub point three, there is a legitimate principle of separation that is legitimate in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But this principle can be abused by false legalistic teaching. And we've all seen it. There is a legitimate principle of separation in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'll give you scriptures for all of that. But this principle can be abused by false legalistic teaching. Scriptures for the Old Testament on separation include Numbers 16, 21, and 26. Numbers 19, 11, and 16. Isaiah 52, 11. That may be the most important one we want to look at because that's the one that's cited. Uh, Daniel 1, 8. Remember, Daniel didn't want to defile himself with the choice foods that Nebuchadnezzar and his staff were trying to get him to start eating. They took him away into captivity and Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael, they said, no, we're not going to defile ourselves with that food. 
Also in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6.17, which is itself a citation from the Old Testament. So it's a legitimate principle. 2 Corinthians 6.17. It is legitimate, but it can be misused. When it talks about do not be bound together with unbelievers in verse 14. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship hath, has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of God, the temple of the living God, just as God said. So this is a principle of not being equally yoked. Why, as a believer, you are not to marry an unbeliever. As a believer, you ought not enter into a business partnership where you have contractual obligations with an unbeliever. It's unequally yoked. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, that's an Old Testament verse that's applied to Israel, but here it's being quoted in the New Testament and it's being applied to believers in the dispensation of the church. Same with verse 17. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. Its primary application is to Israel, but it's being cited in the New Testament as having a secondary application for the church. And I will be a father to you, and you will be sons to me and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So it is a legitimate principle. But notice in the context here of 2 Corinthians 6 where it is applied. It is applied in the realm where an unequal yoke with an unbeliever would leave us defiled and compromised. All too often, though, uh, it's twisted, it's misapplied. It's applied to um, believers, fellow believers instead of unbelievers. It's applied to situations that are not uh, situations of unequal yoking. See, there we've taught the doctrine of, of church discipline. There is a point where that uh, carnal believer is removed from the assembly. That's different from this context of separation, but it's mis, mis, mistaught, misapplied. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people tell me, oh, doctrine of separation, doctrine of separation, that person's sinning. Oh, really? And you never sin. Guess you don't have Galatians 6, 1 in your Bible, even if a brother is caught in a trespass. See, now, yes, there is a place for that, but it's after steps have been followed. We've, we've taught that. All right, let's look at the areas for abuse. This principle can be abused by false legalistic teaching. You know, believers tell me, oh, I just have to separate here into the doctrine of separation. Really? Would you please outline for me the doctrine of separation? Show me your scriptural authority. I don't have any problem with the doctrine of separation as long as it's applied correctly. But if you're going to try to take it to a passage that deals with not being equally uh, unequally yoked with an unbeliever, stop and slow down and say, wait a minute, does that apply to a fellow believer? Second Corinthians 6 does not apply to a fellow believer. That's unequally yoked with an unbeliever, with Belial, with an unbeliever, with darkness. If you're trying to apply that to a fellow member of the body of Christ, what are you really doing? 
Colossians 2 and verse 21. Here's the abuse. And um, verse 16 says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So in other words, in the church age, any effort to try to go back and reimpose Mosaic law is wrong. That was a shadow. The substance is Christ. We live in the reality. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. To try to go back and follow a, a Mosaic code or, or a reasonable facsimile thereof is defrauding believers of the blessings we do have and reward we can receive for walking in grace. In all the effort you spend trying to fulfill law, you're throwing away the rewards and blessings that we could receive for walking in grace by delighting in self-abasement. Oh, look at me. Look how I'm suffering for Jesus. Worship of angels. Taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head. That's Christ from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. Now here in verse 20, if you have died, and that's true, we have. We're in Christ. We're dead in Christ. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? You realize how these rules of Mosaic law can be misabused which all refer to these things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. <laughs> so, all the rules about what, you can, what sort of uh, beverages you can consume, what sort of food you can consume, all these other rules. Is it really biblical? Is it really a part of the age of grace in which we live? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. But notice, they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. They're no value. If you think that by following the system of legalism, you're, you're, you're having victory over the sin pattern, guess what? You're not. In fact, you're surrendering to another aspect of the sin pattern, which is the asceticism trends. And you're just as carnal as the person that's following the, the lust trends of the sin nature. It's subject for abuse. Romans 14, 14. Romans 14, 14. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Nothing is unclean in itself. There no longer remains anything for a church-age priest that would, simply by touching it, render that person ceremonially unclean, unable to function in their Melchizedek priesthood uh, under the high priesthood uh, of Jesus Christ before God the Father's throne. Nothing is unclean in itself. But now notice, to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. That you may still encounter a weak believer, a baby believer, an untaught believer, a believer with hang-ups, a believer who thinks that if you, uh, if you uh, smoke a cigarette, you're going to hell. 
Or if you drink a beer, ooh. Okay? And brothers and sisters in Christ hold that thinking. See? That, that one drop of alcohol is, is, is of the devil. Never mind the fact that Jesus Christ came eating and drinking. <laughs> so, you know, it boggles my mind how the legalistic view can view that in that way. You say, well, the Lord drank. In any event, the, uh, to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And we have to be aware of that so we don't become a stumbling block which is what verse 13 is dealing with and in verse 15 and following. So don't let what is good for you be spoken of as evil. If he thinks it's unclean, then that's his, uh, that's his understanding at this point in time. And we need to be edifying towards him. Hopefully we can give him some doctrine. We can give him some encouragement. We've got to do it in a gracious way. You can't just bark at him and say, well, you know, grow up, get doctrine, get over your legalism. What does that do? But you demonstrate some patience, you demonstrate some grace, you work with them, you show them some principles, you watch them grow. Hopefully you see very quickly where they start to uh, take hold of the grace principles and, and uh, start to develop the mind of Christ on these things. What an opportunity. All right, so it's subject for abuse. Now the analogy under point five, the analogy. Oh, no, I'm sorry, point E. We've got one more point under point four. Simon concluded, this is point E, the last point under point four. Simon concluded that Jesus couldn't be a prophet because he apparently didn't know the woman's heart. That's his conclusion. Well, he can't be a prophet. Why? Well, he doesn't know her heart. But the very next message Jesus says, he says, Simon, I've got something to tell you. <laughs> and Simon says, well, say it, Lord. And it becomes real obvious that Jesus knows her heart. He knows this man's heart. You know, stop to consider. It'd be like you're thinking, uh, you know, you're, you're just walking down the street and you see somebody and you go, that's the ugliest shirt I've ever seen. You're thinking that in your mind. And then he looks right at you and says, no, I think yours is the ugliest shirt I've ever seen. You'd be pretty shocked, wouldn't you? You think, well, what, did you read my mind? <laughs> you know? Well, you can't get away with it. When you're dealing with a prophet, this is what you've got to deal with. Jesus' message, though, makes it very clear that he's, he thoroughly knows Simon's heart. He knows the woman's heart. He knows everything that's going on right here in this episode. He was given a work assignment before this day ever started. Revealed to him through his prophetic gift who he would encounter today, where they'd be coming from, what their needs are, what work he's expected to do, what message he's expected to deliver. All laid out for him here as an as a Old Testament prophet. All right, this gets us then to the analogy, verses 40 through 47. And this is neat because it's a parallel. The analogy. In a striking parallel to Nathan the prophet in convicting King David, Jesus presents Simon with a parable. This is so identical to 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's amazing. 
In a striking parallel to Nathan the prophet in convicting King David, Jesus presents Simon with a parable. So as we look through Luke 7, 40 through 47, we're reminded of 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 12. And so it becomes an analogy. He uses a parable, which is an analogy for the reality of what is going on here. We've got a woman that's been forgiven of her sins. And because of that, in gratitude and in love, she's offering her service. She's offering these gifts and so forth. The only way we can love is because he first loved us. We understand that. That her, her action here in love is one of gratitude and one of uh, response. She's not earning her forgiveness. She's not earning her salvation. Jesus answered him, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A money lender had two debtors. You know, it's kind of like uh, a rich man and a poor man. <laughs> All right. A money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? A great trap because this Pharisee is all caught up in relative scales. Right? Who serves more? Who loves more? Who, who does more? Who memorizes more scripture? Who prays more? Obviously, longer, more glorious, more flowing prayers to be observed by men. Who has the longer tassels demonstrating that they've memorized more scriptures? Who's fasted more? Who looks the worst because they're fasting longer? They're able to hold out longer than the other guy. And they put on this gloomy countenance and everything else so they can be seen by men. So who will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Well, obviously. I mean, you'd have to be a blithering idiot to answer the other, you know, any other way. It's, it's an easy answer. It's obvious. It's just like when Nathan laid it out for David. And David says, that man needs to die. Huh? <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> Glad you agree. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. And so when he said, when he turns to the woman and he says, she's the woman, it's just like Nathan saying, you're the man. <laughs> I mean, it is, it, is, it is such a parallel here. So turning toward the woman, he said, all right, now you got the right answer. Apply it to her. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. He didn't enter her house. He entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. So there is a superiority here. Even though he's the host, she's provided what he didn't. She has a greater love. She has a greater appreciation. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. She has the greater love, the greater appreciation. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. She has the greater love, the greater appreciation. Now, why does she have the greater love? Well, according to the parable, because she has been forgiven more. She has been forgiven more. Now, let's be a little bit careful here with the idea of being forgiven more. When you talk about forgiven more, is that an absolute statement or a relative statement? 
That's a relative statement. Correct. That's a relative statement. Because when... The, the, if you remember back to the day you uh, were redeemed, right? The day that of your salvation and the forgiveness you received, was that relative or absolute? <laughs> okay, it was absolute. That's right. And you were saved. Transferred from the domain of darkness, delivered into the kingdom of his beloved son. Proceeded from darkness to light. You were regenerated. Everything that happened in the moment of salvation took place. That's a, that is an absolute issue. Salvation is, is all or nothing. You're either saved or you're lost. Okay? And the idea of being forgiven more is a relative perspective. And that's in comparison between human beings. So that's from man's view. has nothing to do with from God's view. Okay? So what we're trying to say here is that um, there aren't people who... It's harder for God to save them because they they need more forgiveness. Would we all agree on that? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All right. So, you know, your your dear Aunt Sadie, who's real sweet and nice, she, okay, yeah, she's an unbeliever, and yeah, she needs to be saved, but she really hasn't done a whole lot. She's got a few sins, some little minor things. They're all kind of basically, you know, innocent and maybe a little bit of pride and a couple of gossiping things but she's not she's certainly nowhere near genghis khan <laughs> all right or jeffrey dahmer or some serial murder okay he boy if he was to get saved man what a that'd be a lot of forgiveness wouldn't it okay it, the moment we get into that trap we're in a lot of trouble we're in a lot of trouble because we're trying to then say that the, the human relative comparative sinfulness makes it harder for the omniscient, omnipotent saving work of God. When the, pe the, the, the wages of sin is death and sin, singular, the estate has the same penalty for dear Aunt Sadie with the moral sins and and uh, Attila the Hun over here, it's the same provision that's made. So this idea of forgiven more and forgiven less, we've got to approach it from the relative view, which means we're approaching it from man's view, which means what we're really doing is we're approaching it from Simon's view. Because in his mind, he hasn't been that forgiven. Why not? Well, because... It really wasn't all that hard. He's not that much of a sinner. He's pretty righteous. I mean, sure, he might have a few little things, but certainly not like this harlot right here. When we get to the prayer in uh, Luke 18, let's, let's go there, because I think this also spells it out. This is the attitude of the prideful. Luke 18.10 Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay highs of all that I get. See, here 
in his pride, in his viewpoint as a Pharisee, he's expressing his superiority, expressing his, his, the fact that he doesn't need to be forgiven very much because he's not as bad as these other people. He's better than them. He does more. So his prayer is a thanksgiving prayer uh, for thanks be to me for being as wonderful as I am. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. See, the Pharisee viewed that he was superior. The, The tax collector knew he needed a savior. And there's a contrast. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, we got that coming up. That's a parable coming up later in Luke 18. But the pattern is pretty clear. That if she's been forgiven much, she knows it. She knows she's a sinner. He knows it. He knows she's a sinner. That she's been forgiven much. In his mind, though, he's been forgiven little. And there are believers today that have that mental attitude. That they've been forgiven little. Well, yeah, okay, I'm saved by grace. But, you know, there wasn't really a whole lot to that. I'm really a pretty good person. (laughs) So, in this analogy, it's interesting. When you lose track of the forgiveness you've received, that's you've lost the perspective. And when you've lost the perspective of your forgiveness, you lose the perspective of your grace. Your grace and your love. And that's what this passage here is dealing with. All right, we are out of time. Um, Under point B, I'll give you the last of those. Simon the Pharisee pronounced his own evaluation. He pronounced his own evaluation, just like David did. Simon the Pharisee pronounces his own evaluation. He admits that he loves the Lord less than this woman. He didn't realize he was admitting that, but that's what he was admitting. That he loves the Lord less than this woman loves the Lord. The reality is, he doesn't love the Lord at all. He is not a born again believer in Jesus Christ. All right. Well, two more issues. We'll deal with the absolution. We'll deal with the application next week. And uh, then we'll proceed on to chapter 8 and the introduction to these leading women. And uh, we'll we'll look at the three of them and uh, and then proceed from there. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We praise your name in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.